It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week, dear listeners and viewers on CBSN, hello out there. You know, we are two things. What are those two things? Well, we are... One, relentlessly curious, and two, steadfastly non-ideological. All voices across the political spectrum welcome here at The Takeout. Politics, policy, pop culture, and today, ice cream. (laughs) At the special request of our guest, Republican Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Now, if you remember last week, folks, we were in South Carolina talking to Governor Henry McMaster. So it's two Republicans, South Carolina, the same week. That's never happened before. We're kind of heavy in the GOP in South Carolina. So we'll have to rejigger that next week with other guests, and I'm sure we will. But for now, it's more South Carolina Republican conversation with Tim Scott, and he specifically requested a meal built around not... It'll be ice cream for me. It'll be sorbet for you, right, Senator? Because... Because I'm lactose intolerant. There you go. So... (laughs) We'll have to figure out why you decided to bring me to an ice cream shop. I was thinking about that to myself. Said, so what ice cream what? shop are we at? We're at a place called Ice Cream Jubilee on the waterfront here in Washington, D.C. In the shadow of Nationals Park. That would be the baseball park played in by the current reigning World Series champion, Washington Nationals. Now, in this audience, you know I'm a Padres fan, long-suffering. But when you live in a city and they win the World Series, it's hard not to get caught up in that. So that's where we are. That's what we're doing. Senator Scott, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be here with you. So let's get right to this is a heavy news week. I don't need to tell you that. Let's start right from the top. There were elections yesterday in Kentucky and Virginia, Mississippi. There is a sense uh, that the president took one on the chin in Kentucky when Matt Bevin, the incumbent governor of the Republican, lost. And that Republicans generally took it on the chin in Virginia when that state legislature flipped. Your reaction to what you saw yesterday, how big a warning sign is it for your party and the president going into 2020? Well, frankly, I think it was predictable, the outcome. In, in Virginia, it was pretty clear the direction of the, of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And in Kentucky, the entire Republican ballot won except for the, for the governor. So the fact of the matter is that was not a surprise either. Uh, governor Bevin uh, was polling fairly negatively before Trump came in. His numbers increased pretty substantially because of President Trump's presence, but it was simply just not enough to bring him over the line. So no one was surprised that Bevin lost. Really? Um, no. I mean, I was in the state working for, uh, I started a C4 that is bringing more diversity to the party. So I was in the state working for Daniel Cameron 
and events. He won. He won at new the first African American Attorney General in the state of uh, Kentucky's history. But talking to the folks at his events, it was clear to me that the Republicans were dispassionate about Bevin. The president came in to raise his numbers within Republicans that weren't, mm-hmm. but simply was not enough to take him over the finish line. And that was not a surprise from most analysts' perspective on the ground in Kentucky. And from your perspective, then, it's not a Donald Trump problem, it's a Matt Bevin problem. Well, there's, it's clear, clear, clear indication is every other Republican on the ballot won. The governor did not. So uh, I don't know all of the inner workings and mm-hmm. the challenges that Mr. Bevin had, but it was clear that the Republicans in the state had issues as well. I mean, his numbers were low from a from a from an approval perspective, his numbers were really low for a reigning governor right. in a southern state. Uh, as border Republican. state, yeah. Uh, so in both states, uh, Kentucky and Virginia, you could say reasonably that there was a suburban leakage uh, at the top of the ticket or in the legislative races and for Matt Bevin. I mean, you could say it. I would probably disagree with it. Oh. I think the facts are very simple that Virginia in the suburbs, but the Commonwealth as a whole has been trending left for years. It's been, uh, when's the, it's been a long time since we had uh, a Republican governor in the state. We've had one in the last 20 years in, in the Commonwealth. Jim Gilmore. Yep. Um, so it's been a while. Yes, but Republicans had controlled the state legislature. By and now one it's vote. Right. But, so it but the trend not, line flipped yeah. that way. Major, the, the bottom line is simple, though, that a trend line would not be a single vote. So okay. the, the holding on to a state legislature so by a vote. So let me broaden it out a bit. Let me finish, though, yeah. because this is important. Being able to understand the dynamics of the race is incredibly important to understanding 2020. I think you can whitewash the results in Virginia and Kentucky and say that there's this new trend away from the president and away from the Republican Party. I think that would be inconsistent with reality. Got it. But certainly consistent with the current trajectory that had started years earlier. And Mr. Bevin was just not a good candidate for the state of Kentucky this time around. In general, do you think Republicans going into 2020 have any concern about leakage in other suburbs or the suburban vote being, if not trending away, at least up for grabs. Is that a concern of yours? Should it be for the party? I think if you look at the results of 2016, we won in states where Republicans had not won previously before. And I think that's a, well, I should say before, hadn't won recently. Recently. Yes. Uh, I think that trend will continue in 2020. I think we'll be very competitive in the states that we won beforehand. The, The key, however, is that we can't afford to lose any of the states that we won in 2016. That's really where I think the rubber meets the road is how well are we performing in the states that we brought over from the blue to the red. If we're unable to be successful in those states, it's going to be a very challenging 2020 cycle. The good news is from my perspective, we're going to be pretty, pretty, pretty competitive in those states and hopefully win. Last week in Columbia, South Carolina at Lizard's Thicket, a nice uh, diner we were at there, we talked to Henry McMaster, the governor, and I asked him, is there any doubt in your mind Donald Trump will be re- reelected? And he said no. No doubt whatsoever. Do you share that same confidence? I think I'm very confident. That the president, no doubt. I'm very confident that the president will be reelected in 2020. Okay. Let's talk about the other story that is uh, and has been topical for weeks here in Washington. What is your general attitude about all questions related to impeachment? Are you withholding judgment because you are likely to be a juror, or are you weighing in on either the process or the substance? 
Well, the, the process is important. I think the process has been ugly, but I start with the pro- I start with the prospect that in America you're still innocent until proven guilty. When you read the transcript, which I've read almost a dozen times, I've read eleven times in my twelfth reading right now, and there is not an impeachable offense in the transcript. I have said and will continue to say that the president is innocent of an impeachable offense as you read through the transcript. What about the witness testimony? And if you've had a chance to read the transcripts released this week, has any of the information you've seen there changed or altered in any way that original assumption? I think it reinforces how confusing and inconsistent the testimonies have been. You saw the Mr. Sondland mm-hmm. testified for 10 hours. And you Ambassador Gordon Sondland, yes. When he finished his testimony, he came back to revise his 10-hour mm-hmm. uh, testimony with something that he remembered. That, to me, is very confusing, and it, once again, it, it pours into the same bucket this sense that there is something inconsistent about the entire process, and frankly, his testimony, if he couldn't remember it in the 10 hours, he had to be reminded of something that just, to me, there's something in the water that ain't clean. I'm not sure what it is. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Some have looked at that and said, well, he saw the transcripts of others, saw what they testified, and that clarified his memory, which sometimes happens in a process like this. You, you see things that other people say to you, you know you're under oath, you don't want to make a mistake, and you want to correct the record. Is it possible he just corrected the record and, and in so doing, in the minds of some, reinforced the idea that there was this, if not quid pro quo, something going on to signal to the Ukrainians there had to be something they had to do in order to get the military aid approved by Congress? I would suggest that the ambassador having to read someone else's testimony to inform his own testimony should call into question the entire testimony from my perspective, number one. Number two, I would suggest that we're pretending like he must have lived in a silo where he was had no access to any news whatsoever because the only thing you can read in Washington Press is about the impeachment process. So for him to have the, for him to need someone else to help him remember anything within that tranche mm-hmm. it's it's just hard for me to to understand how that is possible understand that's the voice of tim scott republican senator from south carolina he is a historic figure in the united states senate ladies and gentlemen we're going to get to that aspect of his career in politics particularly in the united states senate in a couple of segments we're going to talk a little bit more about impeachment we're at ice cream jubilee in the navy yard of washington dc i'm major garrett star our wonderful waitress will be here and i've got a three scoop Sunday coming my way. Very excited about that. Back for segment two in just a second. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. I don't care what any bureaucrat says. If the president of Ukraine says, and he keeps saying... No, I did not feel that I had to do anything to get the aid. How do you have a quid pro quo when the person who was the subject of the the pro said it didn't happen? I've written the whole process off. I've written him off. 
I think this is a bunch of BS. That's the voice of Lindsey Graham, Republican senator from South Carolina and a colleague and I assume good friend of our guest, Tim Scott, Republican senator from South Carolina. So the last thing that Lindsey Graham said, I think this is a bunch of BS, is about the process, the impeachment inquiry itself. I've written him off. That is a reference to Adam Schiff, the Intelligence Committee chairman on the House side who is supervising this inquiry. And uh, I don't care what a bureaucrat says. That is about one of the witnesses whose transcript was released this week. And there are those who read that transcript and say it reinforces the idea that there was a quid pro quo. You heard all the things that Lindsey Graham said. Do you agree with all of them? The well, process is BS yeah. and you've written off Adam Schiff? I think I'm not here to explain anybody else's position on anything. I will tell you that from my perspective, as I said at the beginning, that the president, when I read the transcript, it is very clear that there was nothing impeachable within the transcript, number one. Number two, I would say if you watch the House process behind closed doors and think that that somehow gives you confidence in the process, I don't know how that is possible. If you think about the things that are being leaked from the testimonies, it paints a picture for the public in hopes to influencing the opinion of the public without providing all the information. So pretending to have some confidence in a process that is behind closed doors where all we get is the leaked information until recently, that does not, to me, encourage or reinforce confidence in the process. Do you anticipate having more confidence once these witnesses appear publicly and can be cross-examined in public in full view of television cameras and everybody else? I think the American people will have more confidence in a process that is public. And the good news is uh, the process will, uh, if it finishes in the in-house with an affirmative vote to impeach the president, then it comes over to the Senate and we'll have a chance to actually ask all the the same folks questions and perhaps even more people bring them in to ask them questions because if the premise of this the premise of this entire process starts with a whistleblower and Adam Schiff meeting before the whistleblower brings forth any information or files and the the filing of the whistleblower's complaint is not his complaint based on first-hand information it seems like that entire process is questionable But more important than that, from my perspective, is that when you read the transcript, you come to one conclusion, that the president is innocent of any impeachable uh, deeds, number one. Number two, when I talk to folks who have had some insight into what's happening in the House, I think we're going to find the rest of the story to be quite illuminating for the people uh, of our country. Please go on. What do you mean by that? We'll just have to wait and see what what happens. What do you mean illuminating? Illuminating in what sense? the partial information that's being leaked is in fact to create uh, a, 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 a prototype or, or a profile of what the or a Democrats, narrative, is the word narrative a narrative of what the Democrats want the public to believe. When the rest of the information comes out, I think it will be quite, it will be more murky at best. If it might not, be exploded, it, it sounds it like. It might actually reverse the opinion of a lot of folks. You're anticipating that. There is reason to believe that there is more to the story than the Democrats have leaked. They've leaked it in, they've leaked on purpose information to help the American people draw a specific conclusion. And when the rest of the information comes out, I believe it will change that conclusion. I promised that Star would be approaching the table here. It's a kind of a slightly wobbly table, but I'm good with that as long as ice cream's heading our way. Star, please come up. Don't be shy at all. <laughs> So, Star, I see on your menu here the classic Jubilee Sunday, which sounds perfect to me. And you have a a variety of delightful flavors. I can't get them all, but let me just go with banana bourbon caramel, Mm -hmm. apple butter 
oatmeal cookie mm-hmm. and bold vanilla. Absolutely. Would you like all the toppings that come with that? Yes, every topping you have. Absolutely. And even ones you haven't invented yet. <laughs> so, and, and Senator, what are you going to have? Non-dairy, so all of my non-dairy options are here, actually. So There's these, a lot of them. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And they're seasonal, so they kind of like... And they're looking out for you, Senator. Thank you. May I have the passion fruit? Single or double? Uh, let's go with the single. Sure. There we go. Four cones. Ma'am? Couple cones. I better put it in a, in a, uh, a cup with cup. a cone on top of it. There you go. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, there's another shoe to drop, if I hear you correctly. Absolutely. I believe that. And that will be a shoe that will vindicate the president. Well, I think it will be. Or, or maybe not vindicate the president, because as far as you're concerned, if I hear you correctly, he doesn't need to be vindicated, but maybe cast the Democrats in a more de- negative light than they have been so far. I think the public will be surprised at how much of the information that has been leaked out was to create an outcome that was favorable for the Democrats and not the actual objective information coming out. There will be a question about whether or not the Democrats went through a process based on objectivity, looking for the truth, or what has come out is going to reinforce the fact that the Democrats started with a bias that they reinforced by the leaks that came out. So is the White House laying a trap for Democrats? Well, I'm not sure that the White House is, but I think the Democrats are laying a trap for themselves because ultimately the Senate will have the last, last say and we will have an opportunity to, bring, to see all that information in the public forum. How would you evaluate the White House communications and or legal strategy thus far? You know, I give them a passing grade without much of a question, but more importantly to passing me, grade. I, mean, I mean, I think they're doing a good job, but the, the truth is that more important than the legal strategy, I think once the American people have a chance to see all the information from an objective standard, they will come to their own conclusions, and that conclusion, I think, will be there's nothing here to impeach the president over. They may or may not like him more or less, mm-hmm. but there won't be anything uh, to impeach the president. So on. let me ask you this, and I'll move on from this after no, this sure, question. Sure. Uh, do you put any of what you've seen in the improper, inappropriate category, but not impeachable, or just it, there's nothing there at all? It's all good. I'm, I'm perfectly confident and fine with everything I've seen. That this side arrangement that Rudy Giuliani was running, that can happen. I don't have any problem with that. And if uh, ambassadors or, or Foreign Service people feel uncomfortable, too bad. This is Donald Trump. you got to live with it. Well, I, I would... I would hit the rewind button and not once again reject the premise of your of your thought process and your question the fact that you're pretty, entitled to do that Senator. It's, it's pretty simple uh this investigation is about the president not about giuliani it's about the president and the question uh, according to the reason why we started this entire process is based on a secondhand account of what supposedly happened on the call even though the two primary individuals mm. having the conversation both reject the premise of the conclusion of the Democrats. So from, from, from that point forward, we should evaluate happens. We should evaluate what happens. What I'm looking forward, forward to is the release of all the information okay. because I'm not going to sit here and, and draw a conclusion that I can't draw without seeing all the information. Even though I have good friends who are helping me understand what's happening in the House, I will tell you, that getting the full story is going to be very important because I've heard more of the story. Do you anticipate that this will take up much of the Senate's business in January, February, and possibly March? Has the leader given the, the conference, the members, and you're one of them, any indication, even a rough general indication about scheduling? Not really. I mean, it, we'll do it until it's done. We, yes, of course. We'll, start, we'll, to we'll go six days a week until we finish it, and I think it will not take long. The only question is... Uh, 
if we are able to bring forth all the information, that may take a little longer. But the truth is that. Oh, come on, don't be bashful, Star. You come right on up. You come right on up. <laughs> there we go. Beautiful. Jubilee Sunday and what? Sorbet. There we go. I'll take a little cone, too. Sure. There we go. That's great. Yeah. So I think we'll take, take a, a long look at that. <laughs> yeah, his is better than mine. Thank you very much. <laughs> Perfect. I do think yeah. we will, we will uh, take some time to go through the process. But if my instincts are mm-hmm. accurate, it will not take long for us to come to the conclusion that what we saw in the transcript mm-hmm. uh, is there's no impeachment. And if I hear there. you correctly, zero, zero probability Donald Trump is removed from office. Zero. Do you imagine any Republican in the Senate based vote, on the transcript? I mean, voting voting uh, for his removal. Listen, once again, I think you have to get all the evidence, all the information. Based on what we know now. Based on the transcript, which is all and, that we can go on. And the others, you don't this, see This it. is all about the transcript, really. Right. I mean, that's, that's what started this process. It. Not on the transcript. No, right. absolutely not. Do you, do you foresee all Democrats voting for it? I wonder if some Democrats might I, not I, vote to remove him I from office. I do not see all Democrats voting to remove him from office. You do not? I do not. You think there'll be some defections? I do not see all Democrats voting for him. That's the voice of Tim Scott, our special guest. Segment three of the takeout from Ice Cream Jubilee with my triple scoop Sunday coming up. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. I'm increasingly worried that President Trump may want to shut down the government again because of impeachment, an impeachment inquiry. He always likes to create diversions. I hope and pray he won't want to cause another government shutdown because it might be a diversion away from impeachment. It's very worrisome to me. That's the voice of Charles Schumer, the Democratic leader in the United States Senate. Our special guest this week, Republican Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. We are at Ice Cream Jubilee. I am plowing through my Triple scoop Sunday, and it is spectacular. Uh, Senator Scott's had his sorbet. He's probably going to dig back into that. How is it? It's really good. good. I recommend it. All right. Why was Chuck Schumer talking about a potential shutdown? Well, there is a uh, spending bill that expires at the end of this month. Uh, November 21st, I believe, is the correct date. And if it's not uh, reauthorized or re-upped and the president doesn't sign a second one, well, the government shuts down. Are you afraid of that? Well, well the, the rest of the story is really important once again. The rest of the story is that uh, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats uh, agreed to a number uh, in advance of this entire process started, starting, and they also agreed to not having any poison pills as a part of the process. Right. The number yeah. is the overall amount of spending, domestic right. and defense. Yes. Poison pills or other what, what uh, people regard as extraneous policy matters unrelated to federal annual spending. Yes. So Accurate summary? That's a pretty pretty good synopsis. <laughs> the fact of the matter is I do it occasionally. You, you, do, you, you listen well. So <laughs> the fact of the matter is that uh, the fact of the matter is what's occurring is that the Democrats are offering some poison pills to the list, to that process which was supposedly taken Not care of beforehand. Right. What's happening right now? It would not happen. It's happening right now unfortunately, which means that that they would in fact push us towards a shutdown because of because they're breaking the deal. If that does not happen, there will not be a shutdown. And would you give us a percentage on that? I think there's a, probably a 75% chance of no shutdown. No shutdown. You'll be able to work it out. Yeah, I think so. All right. Um, I also want to talk to you a little bit about your relationship with President Trump. How would you describe it? I, th- I'd, I'd, I would describe our relationship as positive. 
In what way? In the ways that matter the most to me and the constituents of my state and the, and the nation. And what do you, what, what, what does that, what do your constituents derive from that positivity? Well, a couple of things. Number one, of course, is the, uh, the impact of opportunity zones that he supported uh, as it relates to creating more opportunities for the poorest Americans. When I sat down with the president after Charlottesville and had a conversation about the challenges that were presented uh, in his response to Charlottesville, uh, he listened to me. We did not come to some kind of a agreement on the racial history, history of, of, of race in America. But what he did, which was surprising and frankly showed character on his part, was he said, Tim, please show me or help me do something that is in the best interest of the people you're here advocating on behalf of. Mm -hmm. The one thing I asked for was for his support on Opportunity Zones, which was a part of my Investing in Opportunity Act. Uh, the next day on Air Force One, he was positively speaking about Opportunity Zones and supported it. That one decision on his part has led to somewhere around $60 billion being earmarked for over 8,000 Opportunity Zones throughout the country where the average poverty rate is near 30%. So we are having a positive impact in those very areas that have been under the microscope during his presidency. So from my perspective, that is a really positive relationship to get that kind of result for the people who are growing up today as I did when I was a kid. How does an Opportunity Zone work? And can you point to any place that has already been changed by its, its arrival sure. or, its, or its very existence? So how does it work? So the Opportunity Zone legislation encourages private sector investment into areas where they would not invest in previously. Number one. Number two, it defers. And how does it do that? Because that's number two. Okay. Yeah. It defers your capital gains tax for about seven years if you will make a long-term seven-year investment in those areas. Said differently, you still owe the tax, but you can defer it if you will take that capital gain and invest it in those communities that desperately need the resources. By doing so, you can reduce your initial tax by... 10% if you do a five-year five investment, 15% if you do a seven-year investment. And if you keep your money there for 10 years or longer, you can eliminate the new capital gains tax that would have been created by that. So it's a really good opportunity for us to find a way to attract investors into the poorest areas. The good news is in those areas today, we're seeing less than a 4% uh, gentrification in those districts, which is really important. So the definition of success isn't moving poor people out right. and moving other people in. It is a huge actually, concern where all this is related. Exactly why I have been working on heirs property, gentrification issues, and designing legislation with those folks most fragile and vulnerable economically in mind. Is there any place you can point to that it's already working? Well, there are areas where we've already seen some success stories. There's uh, Columbia, South Carolina, Mayor Benjamin, who is the uh, president of the National League of Cities in his city. Uh, we had an event where we highlighted the rebirth of an old movie theater that had closed, They're partnering with a church and the a CEO of a movie company. They started that theater back up, hired some folks from the church, so we're creating jobs in that one area. We're working on a project in, in Dallas, Texas, around the, uh, around the, I think it's the south side of Dallas. There is a $400 million project being uh, created today 
creating over 2,000 permanent jobs. There is, uh, in the North Carolina, there are three projects that are happening that are going to create several hundred jobs. In Charleston, my hometown, there's a $54 million project uh, in, in an area that's been blighted for more than a generation. It's uh, going to create a couple hundred jobs, it looks like. So we're seeing it happen. Those, those, those uh, construction projects and development projects are coming out of the ground as we speak. Number one, that's really good news. Number two, the wages within the district, within those zones, is up as high as an 8% increase in those zones, which is really good news. Um, and 60% of the people who live in the opportunity zones live to own their properties, and their property values are starting to increase a little bit. Not so much that they're being run out of their homes, but they're seeing a, an appreciation that they hadn't seen before. So when you started this conversation with our audience, you mentioned a conversation you had with the president after Charlottesville. Yes. Describe for my audience what that was like. Well, it was, a, it was a hard conversation. I had been very critical of the president in his response to Charlottesville. I was on a show, uh, HBO show, a news show, and uh, the White House saw it. They called me and said that we, we heard your comments. We're concerned about your comments. Would you be willing to come in and have a one-on-one conversation with the president? I said yes. I went to the, to the Oval Office, sat down with the president, the vice president, <clears throat> a couple members of his staff. I think there were seven of us total, myself and my chief of staff, Jennifer DeCasper, went over to the White House and had a serious conversation about the history of race in this country and how I see the issue as an African-American born and bred in the South and the, the, the things that I wanted him to be aware of and more sensitive towards. Uh, he listened intently, and uh, he had a different view of it uh, And uh, at the end of the day. What was that different view? I think he, he comes at it from a fellow, who, who, a man, president who did not live in the South, who grew up in a different part of the, the world and had a different paradigm, different worldview, different experience on the issues of race and thought that things were more positive than I thought they were. And I went through the fact that as a elected official in, in 1999, I was stopped seven times by law enforcement without getting a ticket simply because my car was too good. I was in the wrong neighborhood. Several different reasons. One person thought I stole the car, even though it was my license plate and my driver's license and my registration in the, in the vehicle. So I wanted him to understand and become a little more sensitive to why it's so important for us to engage with a level of sensitivity to an issue that has been the original sin of our country. Uh, and we ought not hold everybody accountable for that, but we should not let people off the hook who are we're still responsible for some of the amazingly negative experiences to include family members of, of friends and other people being shot, not me. I don't want to make that, I don't want to conflate the two, but the fact of the matter is we've had an, an issue with race that we should not overlook and we should not say there are good people on both sides because there weren't good people on both sides from my perspective. That's the voice of Tim Scott. We're going to continue this very important conversation on the other side of the break. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We're at Ice Cream Jubilee and it's delicious. <laughs> CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. I have felt 
the anger, the frustration, the sadness, and the humiliation that comes with feeling like you're being targeted for nothing more than being just yourself. I'm Major Garrett. The voice you just heard is that of our special guest this week, Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina. That's from a very memorable speech the senator gave on the Senate floor July 13th, 2016, a continuation of the conversation we had in segment three. I also want to play you a soundbite. Zoe, this is number nine. It's from that same speech, and it's about a moment that the senator well remembers when he was entering the United States Capitol, he was wearing a pin that identifies him as a United States uh, senator or a member of the House? Senator. Senator, okay. So, Zoe, that's number nine, and we're going to continue this conversation on the other side. And the officer looked at me with a little attitude and said, the pin, I know. You, I don't. Show me your ID. I'll tell you, I was thinking to myself, Either he thinks I'm committing a crime, impersonating a member of Congress, or, or what? So I mentioned earlier, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, Senator Scott is a historical figure. He's the only Republican senator in the Republican conference. He's the first African-American senator elected from South Carolina since Reconstruction, correct? Yes. And when Will Hurd retires, as he will at the end of the year, he will be the only Republican who is an African-American in the entire House or Senate. So he is a historical figure, and this speech is a memorable moment, not only in his career, but I would say in the history of the United States Senate. What did that speech mean to you, and where do you think uh, the Capitol is, the country is, on this uh, never-ending question and conversation we must have in this country about race? I, I think we thought we had made more progress as a nation than we had actually made there were still pockets of challenges that we need to address. And that's part of the challenge that I wanted to bring to the surface through my three speeches. The first speech was about being thankful for law enforcement because so often they are the only ones willing to go into harm's way uh, when the challenges are high and the response is low. Second speech was about orienting people to the fact that yes, racism and discrimination are still real. They're still happening today. And it's not just a Folks that you might say that they caused it on themselves, it's to a United States senator simply walking into the Capitol. And that incident, the, the cop called his supervisor and they had to call and apologize to me and try to explain it. But that had been the fourth or fifth incident where even one time officers physically stopped me by holding me from going into a building because they thought... I was not who I was supposed to be. And so my point is that if we're trying to become the America that is colorblind, though I don't know that we should ever think of ourselves as colorblind, mm-hmm. we should just think of ourselves as wanting to treat everyone fairly right. based on their investment and contribution to who we are. Color accepting. Exactly. Color and tolerant. However you say it, but right. it certainly isn't colorblind. We're, no. we're never going to be colorblind. No, we that, we that's, have that's, rich and provocative <laughs> history on, on color and race in our nation, and that should not go away. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure people understood that's still happening to folks just like me. Mm-hmm. As well as I spoke about the advancements that we've made in this nation. Uh, the problems that we see today, they pale in comparison to the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. They pale in comparison to the 1960s and the 1970s. They could pale in comparison to the concept of Davis-Bacon Act that was designed to get fewer minorities winning federal contracts. It's still law, still needs to go away, but 
there was a time when the institutions of our nation right. reflected a systemic nature of racism that does not exist today as it did then. And sometimes we don't spend time seeing both sides. You have to be on one side or the other side. It's all good or all bad. And that's just not the case in America. And I want to <clears throat> go back to the conversation you had with the president. I wrote in my book, uh, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, that on questions of race, the president is borderline fatalistic about resolving them. And he really does believe that the essence of the issue from a solutions perspective in the presidency is not about rhetoric and it's not about getting people to get to a different place of feeling. If I can get you a job, that will solve half or more of this problem. I really fundamentally believe that is his essential orientation. He's not racist or pro or anti. He just thinks I can only do so much. And he's borderline, as I wrote, fatalistic about resolving these things. Do you think that's generally a, a, an accurate description? I think the president deserves credit on improving the economic outcome of the country and specifically minority groups. I do think we all, president, me, you, all of us should be more careful on how we communicate with each other. It's one of the reasons why James Langford and I, Senator from Oklahoma, came up with something called Solution Sundays to help people, encourage people who are of different races, different backgrounds to spend some time breaking bread because right. it's hard to hate what you know. Mm -hmm. And that is a simple concept that has worked in my life since I was five years old living on Air Force bases in Illinois and in, in Michigan. But you know the president discounts some of that. I mean, you had a, a tough conversation. You weren't able to bridge the gap on those very things. You were right. able to bridge a gap on a policy solution. The president jumped on that, said, give me something else. I'm not oh. going to change who I am or what I sound like. So and he two, hasn't. Two things I would say. Anyone over the age of three changing who they are over one, in one conversation has never happened in the history of the world. And, and that one conversation will not happen, did not happen either. But what we have seen is I've seen the White House engage on issues of race in a very different way. Not holistically, but consistently I've seen progress. Uh, we could spend some time on your show talking about the, the judges that came before the Senate mm -hmm. that I found objectionable. Two of whom you voted against. And they, they, they withdrew at least one of those individuals. And what's happened since then is that they have brought me in on the early part of their process to make sure that the judicial candidates that they're bringing forth are folks who, when I read their college writings or when I see the history of their, their lives, they give me a chance to weigh in early in the process as opposed to later in the process. And what does that signal to you? It, it signals credibility and confidence that I am willing to do the hard work of saying no when necessary and or being able to understand why this candidate in that past is something that is mischaracterized. That's a huge and very important position to be in, to be able to have a serious conversation with the White House about a lifetime appointment. Um, uh, it's happened in would you opportunity say, zones as Would well. you say in this conversation you have something approximating veto power, or they just take no. you seriously? I think they take me seriously, but my, my colleagues in the Senate uh, uh, on the Republican side have given me enough, uh, enough of their support where I know that if I am visceral against a candidate, the chances of that candidate getting through from a racial perspective on the racial objections that I, could ha I would have is about zero. Interesting. And um, <clears throat> is it enough? Do you wish the president softened some of this rhetoric, yes. sounded different? Yes. 
I, I've told the president that. <laughs> and he and I have had a conversation the last couple of months about, about his rhetorical tone and how he could tone it down and he'd probably be a little more popular. And I said, yes, sir, you're right. And, and so, but this is the thing about President Trump. It, 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 it's, it's, it's an unbiased, unfiltered critique of other people in other places. So it's not simply African-Americans or, or the four women of color. He, he was hard on John McCain. He's been hard on Adam Schiff. He's been hard on Nancy Pelosi. He's been hard on Mitt Romney. So, so the president doesn't have, from my, pers- my perspective, he doesn't put it into a racial category. If he, if he thinks you're attacking him, he attacks back. It's just what he does. This is something we should all recognize as a, a counterpuncher strategy, and that is what he has done. Uh, and we will continue, hopefully, to work together and find a way to f- have a productive path forward. I've been able to have that productive path forward. But the better you know the president from a one-on-one perspective, the more you understand why I'm optimistic about the things that we can do together. Because he will do the small things that the public will never see. And it's such, such a kind gesture. Uh, I remember that uh, it was probably not that long after my comments in Charlottesville, maybe it was a little time after that, actually, now that I think about it, where my, my mother's birthday was coming up, and I, I, I was like, you know, I called the White House and told the president I, I would love to him to sign a card, send her a card, and he, they said, okay, but the day of her birthday, he calls me in the morning and says, I, I would rather just call your mom as well. And so this was he her likes 70th, to call. 75th birthday party, and he calls her and talks to her for like 10 minutes. He didn't have to do that. And I haven't been 100% on his side. He did that because it was what he wanted to do. And if you just ask him, you'll find this president to be a warmer person than you might feel that he is when he's on TV having uh, a, a combative situation that is being covered by the press. That's the voice of Tim Scott, our special guest. It's been a pleasure. We have one more segment. Please stay tuned for the takeout outtake especial. But, Senator Scott, it's been great to have sorbet and ice cream with you and have a conversation. Look forward to it next time. Thanks. For more from this week's conversation, download the takeout outtake especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Katiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, and Sarah Cook. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. 
it is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.